This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is John Sakata. Nope. No way. I'm sorry. Our card this week is Len Sakata, third baseman slash second baseman for the New York Yankees, card number 716. All right. Len, don't call me John Sakata. Looking forward to this one. And why are we talking about Len this week? Earlier this week, I was watching the World Baseball Classic watching the Japan-Korea game, and that was an, an incredible game, incredible atmosphere to watch this not even knockout stage game where everyone was just like totally amped up. Crowd is so into it. And there were also a couple Asian-American players on the team, Lars Newtbar, Tommy Edmond playing for their respective Japan and Korean teams. And it did make me think about whether there were any Asian-American players in the 1988 top set. I think, and I could be wrong here, Len Sakata might have been the only Asian-American player in the set. And so I decided, let's check out this card. We got some cool glasses. We have a successful career. We have the first Hawaiian player to play in the World Series. Len was a really solid backup and a good guy to have around, but he never got a lot of playing time. He does have a Sabre bio, so thank you to Rory Costello for that Sabre bio. And let's go to the front of 716 where we see Len Sakata. Looks like he's at third base because you can see some folks behind him. We'll talk about them in a second. But you see the iconic dark sunglasses. These are not the glasses that he had earlier in his career that were the giant science teacher glasses. These are like a, like he's a cop. Absolutely. He makes you think of Richard Belzer, RIP, who recently passed away and held the record. I forget how many different shows that he played the character of Detective Munch. Maybe it was 12 different shows. And Len kind of bears a resemblance with the long hair in the back, with the dark glasses. Richard Belzer wore dark glasses most of his life, not just because he was utterly cool, but also because his eyes were very sensitive to light. And I don't know if you heard the episode I've done about Richard Belzer on my other podcast about dark sunglasses called Blinded by the Light. It was a big problem for him, but it did make him always then look very cool on TV. And it makes Len look very cool here. He's got the Yankees grays on with a black sweatshirt underneath, some Nikes, some real stirrups. What are those dudes doing behind him? I don't know. Are those bullpen guys sitting down on a bench? Are they groundskeepers? I can't really tell what's going on there. I can't either. They're very blurry on my card. Maybe looking at a clipboard? I can't tell. Mm. Well, what I one last thing I really love about this card and about this episode is that it continues our streak on the pod of only discussing the most famous and influential New York Yankees. I know Yankees fans love us for this and really treasured the Jerry Royster and Ken Phelps episodes and Ron Kittle. And now we're on Len Sakata. Let's go to the back of 716 and we'll see the profound Yankees career that Len had. Len also was influential in Ron Kittle's time on the Yankees. I'm sure that those Yankees fans fondly remember his 19 games played for (laughs) the Bronx Bombers. 
So on the back of 716, we have Len Sakata, third baseman and second baseman, five foot nine, one sixty, right-handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Brewers in the first round of the special January 1975 draft. Born June 8th, 1953. Born exactly 24 years before myself and Kanye West, Honolulu, Hawaii, and a home in Merced, California. Honolulu is the capital and largest city in Hawaii. 250,000 people when Len was born, now up to 350,000. Len is our third Hawaiian after Charlie Huff and Joey Meyer. He is a fourth generation Japanese American, a Yonsei. On his father's side, his mother is Nisei, the first generation born in the United States to a Japanese parent. His father, Haruki, was also known as Melvin and fought in World War II in the Gopher Broke 442nd Infantry Regiment made up of Japanese Americans. And this remains the most decorated military regiment in U.S. history, also included Daniel Inoue, who lost an arm in the war and would serve nearly 50 years in the United States Senate. Len's father, Melvin, also served with the 522nd Field Artillery Battalion, who liberated the Dachau concentration camp outside of Munich. So his given name is Len Haruki Sakata, and it is a given name with two N's. I did look this up because I've never seen the spelling of Len with two N's, and some examples that showed up on this one website of baby names were Len Sakata, the most famous Len with two N's, German mm-hmm. actor Len Kudrowitzki, I guess he's in Vikings. And then the middle name of Elizabeth Taylor's dad. And this means brave lion. This makes it maybe the most obscure first name that we've talked about. Although it's it's not all that unusual sounding, but this particular spelling being so rare is notable. I'm trying to think if there's any other, I mean, I other mean, than Garth. Garth. Yeah. I mean, you know, Garth is very exotic. Uh, but I'd say exotic. <laughs> it's a very exotic name, uh, <laughs> but apparently far less common than Len with two N's. Len's, yes, <laughs> Len with two N's. Uncle Jack Ladra, Jack, real, you know, there's a common name. His yes. uncle Jack Ladra was one of the first Americans to play professional baseball in Japan. Len went to Kalani High School. Other alumni. Baseball-related include Shane Comine, who played a few games for the Oakland A's in 2005-2006, and Ryan Kurosaki, who was a teammate of Len in high school. Ryan would go on to play in MLB. He was the first MLB player of full East Asian descent, and Len would be the second. In 1970, Kalani High School won the state title with Len leading that team and Ryan Kurosaki also playing on that team. Len wasn't drafted out of high school. And so rather than stick around on the island and maybe go to college, become a high school coach or high school teacher, he decided to go try to play baseball on the mainland. And he went to Treasure Valley Community College in Ontario, Oregon. And it was, to me, a little bit odd that a guy who would go on to play in MLB didn't get any attention from bigger schools or major league scouts. But at the time, there were very few Asian Americans in professional baseball, very few people from Hawaii in professional baseball. And according to Len, the Asian stereotype at the time was that nobody was athletic or even taken seriously. So I think that's probably why nobody even attempted to try to to do it. It just didn't seem like we fit in. Coming from Hawaii, where the population in the 70s was as high as 60% Asian or native Hawaiian, Len was a little bit shielded from some of the more 
outright and blatant racism. And he said that we were a multicultural state and everybody had the same background because virtually everybody came there to work on a plantation. So they're all in the same situation, trying to make ourselves better and better the lives of our families. And I think because of that, I felt it was always going to be fair. I knew it was different on the mainland, but I wanted to find out what life was like away from the islands. I think it made me more aware of what reality really was. And so he went into school, not really intending to play professional baseball, but using it as a way to get to the mainland. Still was planning on maybe coaching in high school, but the reality of, of a professional baseball career at this point didn't exist for Asian Americans. So starting at community college, education major, and aside from Len, other Treasure Valley Community College baseball players include Wayne Nordhagen and Jason Hamill. Hamill had the longest career, 13 years, three for the Cubs, Rays, and Rockies, among others. Len played well his first year and was drafted by San Francisco in the 14th round. That showed him that there might be a chance for him to play professionally. But he decided that he would stay in school, transfer to Gonzaga, a school better known for a jazzy point guard and Michael Jordan's greatest draft selection, Adam Morrison. But the Zags also had some MLB players, most notably Jason Bay, and two of Len's teammates, Rick Sweet and Casey Parsons, made it to the majors. And Len was really good. He stepped in and hit 327. And even though he was only 5'9", 160 by the time he got to the pros, he hit eight home runs in 50 games. So showed a, showed some power at the college level. The Padres picked him in the fifth round of the draft, but he stuck around for one more year of college. He said, I turned it down because it was an insult. They were trying to get me for cheap. I was going to turn down a scholarship for $5,000. Yeah, $5,000 is a pretty, pretty weak signing bonus. So he goes back to school at Gonzaga, and in 1974, he was even better, was second-team All-American, hit 379, 11 homers, and an OPS over 1.1. In the 1975 January draft, he was picked by the Brewers 10th overall, a few picks after the son of Maury Wills, Bump Wills. And this leads to a scout controversy. Len's coach at Gonzaga claimed that the Brewers were pressuring him that the scouts Dick Bogard, Roland LeBlanc, and farm director Tony Siegel came to, to Len and pressured him into signing this contract when Len really wanted to come back to school. The Gonzaga coach said that it would take too long in the courts to end up canceling the contract. That was how it was reported in the local news. They really only took one side of the story. Milwaukee claimed we did everything by the rules, and the coach, obviously upset at losing him, is pouring a little kerosene on the fire. I didn't find any quotes from Len about whether or not he was pressured into signing a contract that he didn't want to sign. So whatever the case may be, he signed for $10,000 and reported to the Brewers AA team in Thetford Mines, Quebec. Ah, Thetford Mines, Quebec. I No, I've never heard of Thetford Mines. Thetford Mines, a, a town of 25,000 people, about 100 miles south of Quebec City, Apparently, the people there didn't know much about the baseball team either because they drew only 200 or 300 people per game. We did find that Thetford Mines is known as the asbestos capital of Canada. So if you would like a job in the Convention and Visitors Bureau of Thetford Mines to try to come up with a better slogan than the asbestos capital of Canada, I think they might need your help. The last asbestos mine closed in 2012. So... I think things are relatively safe, but it does look like they could use some new promotional literature. 
Yeah, maybe just start with previously known as the asbestos capital of Canada. Mm, perfect. At Thetford Mines, Len was the Eastern League's all-star second baseman in 1975. His hitting was pretty average, 257, nine homers and 43 RBIs, but he was a solid player in the field. And he bumped up to AAA Spokane in 1976, hitting 280 with 10 homers and 70 RBIs. Good for a second baseman at the time. Frank Howard called him the strongest player in the Brewers system, which is pretty high praise from the six foot eight Howard. And in 1977, he hit even better, 304 with 73 RBIs through 94 games, added 17 steals to his game, so he's got some speed, and he earns himself a call up. With the Brewers, he was solid defensively, but on offense, he was a work in progress, let's say. He had a 16 OPS plus. Not 116, 16. His manager, Alex Gramas, considered him a showboat and didn't like his attitude when he was slumping. One coach said that Len expected perfection and he would get really down on himself if he wasn't perfect. So hitting 162, uh, that's less than perfect. That perfectionism was perhaps pushed along by the fact that Len was at this point the only Asian American baseball player. And he said he used that as motivation. When you're the only one and you represent your entire culture, you'd better be good at what you do. It drove me to represent my state and my people to not do anything stupid because I knew that if I don't do it well, it probably would have been harder for the next guy. Yeah, that season he also injured his groin, which made it harder for him and didn't help his play. 1978, George Bamberger was the new coach. So Len got a bit of a fresh start. He impressed out of spring training and made the team. As the presumptive starter at second base, the Brewers had Paul Molitor at shortstop because Robin Yount had been injured and then was deciding at the time whether to retire and go pro as a golfer. There's a kind of a sliding doors moment, David. So Len played in 23 of the Brewers' first 28 games at second base, but then Yount returned. He decided not to go to the PGA. He decided to come back to MLB, and so Molitor moved to second. And Len, who really wasn't playing that great, was back on the bench and then eventually back at Spokane for the rest of the summer. He hit only 192 with the Brewers, but his OPS plus, David, moved all the way up to 45. Remember, 100 is average, so he's only half as good as the average hitter. But it's a big improvement from 16. And yes, even though yes. he hit, <laughs> even though he hit 300 at AAA in 1979, he was only called up for a few games in Milwaukee. He ends up hitting 500, going 7 for 14. And this is in the top 25 most at-bats with an average of 500 or better. And the top of that list is Bob Boyd, who in 1948 hit 556 in the Negro Leagues for the Memphis Red Sox. And that name, Bob Boyd, might be familiar to listeners because he is one of Oil Can Boyd's uncles. So aside from those 14 at-bats... Len's path is blocked at Milwaukee. They still have veteran Don Money as a utility man and Jim Gantner, who's the second baseman of the future. And so Len asked for a trade. Yeah, he was sent to Baltimore for reliever John Flynn, who would pitch in 20 games total for Milwaukee. Len wasn't happy about getting traded and then going to AAA Rochester, but he hit 344 in 26 games and earned himself a call-up in 1980. But with the big league club, he hit under 200 in his 83 at-bats, and he dedicated himself to working out. The Orioles trainer claimed that he had the biggest biceps on the team, and it kind of shows 
You can see some of that work here on his cards with the Orioles. He looks great. This is one of the greatest pictures on a baseball card. Len, he's got big arms. He's got a big bird on his head. He's got big glasses and big, big hair. Black and orange wristband. He's just looking great in his 1981 Don Russ card. He spent all of 1981 in Baltimore, played in 61 games. He added a little more pop with that workout regiment, hitting five home runs, but still had a pretty low average, 227. His OPS plus was 83. He did hit two home runs in a game against Milwaukee on September 20th, which was his only big league multi-homer game. He said, there's a little extra incentive for me against Milwaukee. They said I didn't have the ability to play for their team. I didn't feel I got a chance. He said, I don't feel hatred, but I like to prove I can play and gain their respect. In 1982, he was the starting shortstop for the Orioles, and he had his most complete and best season. Cal Ripken had joined the team and had started at third base. So Len was the starter at short. Then Ripken moved to short in July, and Len moved to second base. He played a career-high 136 games. This line really stands out on the card because it's his only season with more than 100 games. He had highs in every offensive category. Six homers, 31 RBIs, 259 average, and an OPS plus of 90. And a solid season, 2.1 war, the only season that he was worth over one win. Matt, we got to have baseball reference look into this. Baseball reference has him at 135, tops at 136. I don't know who to trust. I don't know who to trust either. I don't like it when mommy and daddy fight. <laughs> the Topps Corporation from these baseball cards has done nothing to gain our trust. <laughs> That's true. It's true. Plenty of falsehoods, omissions, and other errors. We'll go with 135 with baseball reference. Len was the last shortstop prior to Cal Ripken, which that is a notable achievement. There was no other shortstop in Baltimore ever. Maybe still. 1983 was really when the Orioles magic showed up. Something magic happens Every time you go You make the magic happen The magic of Orioles baseball When the game is close And the yokes are hot there's a thundering roar from 34 to give it all they've got. And you never know who's gonna hear the call. Every game does a different start. That's the magic of Oreo baseball. Oreo's magic, feel it happen. Oreo's magic, feel it happen. Oh, Len was a solid utility player, mostly used as a second base replacement for Rich Dower. He was decent. He hit 254, three home runs, and he was also involved in one of the most remarkable innings ever in baseball on August 24th. Rick Dempsey, catcher and inexplicably not in the 1988 top set, was pinch hit for in the seventh inning by Joe Nolan. Then in the bottom of the ninth, the Orioles were down. Nolan got on base and a pinch runner is called in. That pinch runner scores to tie the game, sending it to extra innings, and the Orioles are out of catchers. Len hadn't played catcher since high school, maybe. Even in high school, he was a shortstop. 
but he was the Orioles emergency catcher and he was moved from second base to catcher in the 10th inning. The leadoff man hits a home run. So the Orioles are down one now. Next batter gets a single. And so there's a man on first and Tippy Martinez is called into pitch. The man on first is looking at Len Sakata behind the plate and thinking there is a second baseman behind home plate. I'm going to steal. So Barry Bunnell takes off and Tippy Martinez picks him off. Dave Collins gets walked, takes too big of a lead. Tippy picks him off. The next batter is Willie Upshaw. Willie Upshaw is a first baseman. I don't know what he was doing leading off. After the first two guys get picked off, why are you taking a lead? For some reason, he also takes a lead. Tippy Martinez picks him off. Three outs. All three of them were pickoffs. Len Sakata didn't have much to do except catch the ball if it was thrown to him. Luckily for him, he didn't have much to do because Tippy Martinez did it all. In the bottom of the 10th, Ripken hits a home run to tie it up with two outs and two on, perhaps a little bit annoyed that everybody wants to run on him. Also, he said he didn't think that he could catch another inning because his legs just couldn't take it. (laughs) Len comes up and hits a home run to win the game. So a huge walk off after being part of one of the most ridiculous innings in baseball history. That is incredible. Emergency catcher then saves the day in the bottom of the 10th. You can imagine Memorial Stadium going crazy. That season, Len also broke a dubious streak of his own. He had gone 0 for 66 against the White Sox in his career. That was over 22 games. And then on August 11th, he got a single. And as he hits first base, he puts his hands up in the air triumphantly. (laughs) I guess when you have 66 straight at-bats, you know that they've got your number. But probably thanks to that record of futility, Len didn't play in the ALCS against the White Sox. The Orioles did beat the White Sox to get to the World Series. Len got into a game in that World Series against the Phillies. In so doing, he became the first Hawaiian and the first Asian American player to play in the World Series. Brought in as a pinch runner in the sixth inning. He went 0 for 1 in a game for a win. And then after that fifth game victory, He became the first Asian American and first Hawaiian to win the World Series when the O's won the title. In 1984, he continued as a backup to Rich Dower and struggled, hitting only 191 in 157 appearances. He did get to play on the Orioles' tour of Japan, playing against the NPB teams, and became a hero to at least one young Japanese baseball player, So Taguchi, who would go on to play for the Cardinals. Taguchi didn't realize that Sakata was born in Hawaii. He just saw Sakata and as Japanese and told himself, that must mean that a Japanese player could find a home in Major League Baseball. So inspiring the next generation. In 1985, he struggled again and was sent to AAA in July. As a veteran, he had the option to decline the demotion, but he went ahead and took it and went back to AAA, but didn't really play that well. Only hit 215 and... Although he got called back up at the end of the season for a couple weeks and finished the year at Baltimore with a 227 average and a 74 OPS plus, the Orioles did not extend his contract into 1986, and he becomes a free agent. He signs with Oakland, spends most of the year in AAA at Tacoma, hit 313 in 110 games. He was called up in August, hit 353 in 17 games at the end of that season, but they didn't extend his contract. He then signs with the Yankees, which is why we have this card. And we do have a fun fact on the back of this card about Len's life in 1987. 
This is a strange fun fact. I mean, it's not that strange. The fun fact is that Len and his wife have two children, Ryan and Aaron. It's just, we've never seen anything like this before. Usually you have minor league stats. Here you've got a player who has played in the minor leagues, who has made the all-star team in the minor leagues, who's been, you know, second team All-American in college, who played an inning as of catcher, as an emergency catcher. Was a trailblazer as the first Japanese-American player to play in the major leagues. And instead, they have the most... I mean, it's very important. All right, family. David, what's the most important thing? What do we know is the most important thing? Family. I mean, if, no, if, brec- breakfast. Oh, oh. Wait, right, family. Family. Well, no, I thought we a, were talking about the Fast and the Furious. Well, I thought we were talking about Arrested Development. Okay. Oh, well, you always leave a note. Oh, that too. too. And there's always money in the banana stand. It's also funny that we had nowhere to put that fun fact, so we just threw it in. We didn't really have from the bio exactly where in the story that happened. Uh, But (laughs) we've got it now here in 1987. And the rest of the season with the Yankees, pretty uneventful. He only played in 19 games. He hit 267 for the season. On June 28, 1987, he slid into second on a pickoff play and tore ligaments in his ankle and took out Ron Kittle in the process. According to an article about odd injuries, Kittle, quote, injured his neck helping to carry teammate Len Sakata off the field on a stretcher. Was he Terrible. trying to do it by himself? Because normally with the stretcher, like you have at least two guys, sometimes four, right? You've got like... Two people at the front and two people at the back. And Len doesn't look really bulked up in this picture. He was no, 160 I mean, on pounds. The, on the card, he's 160. Like, wait, did Ron Kittle, like, fireman carry Len Sakata or something? I'm really surprised I because I figured from Ron Kittle, from his work, I would have figured that he could have just slung him over in a fireman's carry and, and, and taken Len and maybe heaved him 50 feet in the air. I think that we're going to have to figure this out over some Kittle nachos. Ooh, yes. Len ended up rehabbing at AAA and was back on the team by the end of the year, but he didn't end up getting into a game after June 28th. He retired after that season, sort of, but we should go to the final line. Yes, we'll close the book on Len Sakata. 11 seasons in the major leagues, 564 games, and a 230 batting average. 25 home runs, 109 RBIs, 30 steals, 17 caught stealing, and an OPS plus of 71. While he was a below average hitter, he was a solid defensive player, and for that reason was valued at four wins above replacement for his career. And he did have one World Series ring with the 83 O's. How about in retirement? At first, he went into coaching, first for Oakland for a few years until 1990. And then he came back and he was playing again. In 1990, for the San Bernardino Pride and the Senior Professional Baseball Association, he hit 327 in 15 games, but then that league folded. Then he was a coach in the Angels system until 1994, went to Japan and coached for the Chibalote Marines under Bobby Valentine for a couple seasons. And then he spent some time in the San Francisco Giants system, managing the San Jose Giants for a few years, then was back to Japan with the Marines for in their farm system, and then from 2011 to 14, held various minor league positions before retiring. Then in 2019, 
for his service to the team, the San Jose Giants, retired his number. But then in 2021, Len was called back in to coach the San Jose Giants. So he went back for at least one more year. So Len Sakata, a trailblazer, as best as we can tell, the only Asian-American in the set, makes him very notable and a really cool look on the front of this card. But now that we've looked at him a little bit more, David, what do we think? Len Sakata was a trailblazer and one who doesn't really get the accolades that he deserves. He played at a time where often he was the only Asian player, American or otherwise, in the league. Although Masanori Murakami played in the 1960s, there really weren't Japanese players in MLB until Hideo Nomo in the 1990s. There were a few players in the 70s and 80s like Mike Lum and Atlee Hamaker, and now there's players like Lars Newtbar, Christian Yelich, Tommy Edmonds, Stephen Kwan, who really have carried on this Asian-American legacy that Len Sakata started in the 1970s and 80s. But Len was an, a really early Asian-American player in Major League Baseball, and it couldn't have been easy especially coming from a place like Hawaii, Len felt conspicuous as an Asian American playing in communities that didn't have Asian populations, where folks had very little experience with Asian people and doubted his abilities on account of his size and his appearance. And he also carried a grudge, both as someone who was underestimated, both for his appearance, but also by teams like the Milwaukee Brewers, where he didn't quite make it. And so in the love to face category, we have the Milwaukee Brewers. Along with that two-home run game, he added three more. His five home runs against Milwaukee were the joint most against any opponent. He also had five against the Tigers, but in 24 more at-bats. His 770 OPS against Milwaukee was the highest against any opponent. So he used that extra chip on his shoulder to his advantage. In his hates to face, we did talk about the White Sox and that long hitless streak. For his career, he hit 069 with a 240 OPS against the Sox, 7 for 102. But in his retirement, Len has become an incredibly well-respected minor league coach. But he hasn't gotten the chance to be a big league coach, and he probably won't at this point. Bobby Valentine said of Len Cicada, in my mind, he's always been one of the great baseball guys. He's dedicated his life to where he's played it, learned it, and can teach it. He's exactly what my organization needs to have someone with his credentials, enthusiasm, and knowledge of the game. And Len was a little bit miffed that he didn't ever get that big league call, but he's come to accept it. He likes coaching A-ball. He likes working with the younger players. He says, this is a situation where I can have the best impact. The players are eager and more impressionable. I feel fulfilled at this level. He holds records in the California League for most seasons coached, most wins, most consecutive winning seasons with eight. And he's in the California League Hall of Fame and the Hawaii Sports Hall of Fame. When he left Hawaii to go to junior college, there was no guarantee for Len. He could have stayed on the island, gone to school, got a good job teaching, coaching high school. But he left determined and motivated to prove everybody wrong. And despite facing prejudice, Sakata felt that he'd chosen the right path in his career. The reason we do certain things is because we believe in something. And I believed that baseball was going to be a good career. I'm glad I decided to play baseball. I had to put everything I had into it. By playing, he blazed a trail that inspired both Hawaiian kids and players in Japan like Sotoguchi. And in 2008, Don Wakamatsu, who played briefly for the White Sox in the major leagues and was a longtime coach, was hired as the Mariners manager. And Len said, 
that's a milestone, a barrier breaker, if you will. I think Asian Americans will probably stand up and be very proud of the fact that somebody finally got to that position in baseball. And it's important because Don Wakamatsu grew up looking up to Len Sakata and saw Len Sakata play and saw that it was possible to play in Major League Baseball as an Asian American. And now he had taken that next step as the first Asian American manager. A role model for so many and a cultural icon on his baseball cards. A great story. So thank you, David, for that. And thank you to you at home. If you've ever been carried off the field on a stretcher by Ron Kittle, we'd love to hear all about it on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.